It's Friday, January 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's called vaccine tourism, and it's how the super-rich are beating you to the vaccine. In Florida, there were reports of rich Canadians and Venezuelans crashing the state to get their shots. But in London, there's an exclusive lifestyle and travel service called Knightsbridge Circle that has been organizing trips to Dubai and Abu Dhabi for their clients to get vaccinated. Oscar Rickett, contributor to Vice World News, joins us for how money can buy vaccines. Next, CDC officials have said that it might be time to reopen schools. The most available evidence says that in-person instruction can be safely carried out if proper precautions like mask wearing is followed and a community willing to impose restrictions on other settings like bars and indoor dining. Ronnie Rabin, health writer at the New York Times, joins us for why schools may be on the path to opening back up. Finally, even as vaccines roll out and expectations are that people will want to get back out and start spending, some experts are predicting that as many as 10,000 retail stores could close in 2021. Apparel retailers are taking the biggest hit with people skeptical about getting out there and shopping in public again. Lauren Thomas, retail reporter at CNBC, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. If you are a member of this service, then you get flown out. You get picked up by someone and they drive you to the luxury villa that you're staying in. You have the first round of the vaccine and you get a choice. Joining us now is Oscar Rickett, contributor to Vice World News. Thanks for joining us, Oscar. Thank you for having me. Since the beginning of the rollout of the vaccines for coronavirus, there was always a concern that people would be cutting in line. Everybody was setting up these rules on the tiers, who would be getting the vaccines first. We knew it was going to be kind of a mess. And there was obviously a worry that people with a lot of money, wealthy people, were going to use their connections to cut in line. We're hearing that that's happening. We're hearing a lot of people call it vaccine tourism, where they're setting up trips to other countries so that they can get the vaccine. It's happening in places like London, setting up trips to go to Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. There's even cases of Canadians and Brazilians and Argentinians coming to Florida in the United States. So, Oscar, tell us a little bit about this. I spoke to the guy who claims to be the sort of pioneer of luxury vaccine tourism. There is basically exclusive travel and lifestyle service called Knightsbridge Circle. Knightsbridge is sort of exclusive part of the central West London that kind of speaks of money and connections and the establishment. So that's the kind of world we're dealing with. So now, just to give you a bit of context, in the pre-pandemic world, the members of this club, they pay £25,000 a year and they're looked after by personal managers. And these personal managers have five clients and they take care of getting tables at fully booked restaurants, finding personal trainers, that kind of thing. The pandemic hit and... The CEO, Stuart McNeil, tells me that what they then begin to deal with is COVID tests. And there was a real problem in Britain getting tests. And then it's also things like weight loss programs and therapy via Zoom, stuff like that. But when the vaccine comes into play, they basically use connections that they have in the UAE, particularly in two emirates in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, to set up a kind of 
system whereby if you are a member of this service, then you get flown out to Dubai or to Abu Dhabi. You get picked up by someone in a Bentley or a Range Rover. They drive you to the luxury villa that you're staying in. You have the first round of the vaccine and you get a choice. You can have the AstraZeneca's vaccine, you can have the Pfizer vaccine, or you can have the Sinopharm vaccine, the Chinese vaccine. So you get one shot of that and then you spend the next three weeks or longer in your luxury villa and then you get the second shot and then you come home. And the way they do this, they're using their connections that they have in these other countries in the UAE, supply them these vaccines. But these vaccines are meant for the locals that are there. At some point, they're missing out on these. I can't say that I've seen a lot of reports saying that Emiratis are missing out, although people, residents of both Abu Dhabi and Dubai have told me that they haven't been vaccinated. I spoke to a private medical provider, a a sort of private insurance company like you would have in the United States in Dubai, who told me that they don't have a vaccine, that no companies like them have a vaccine. And so the vaccine is coming from what we would considered to be the public provision. There's been a bit of a flip on this because the public vaccine in the Emirates is the Sinopharm vaccine, the Chinese vaccine. But I understand that the ruling families there have been given the AstraZeneca vaccine. Different vaccines are available if you have the right connections. And what Knightsbridge Circle, their CEO, Stuart McNeil, tells me he looks after the top families there. Now, the top family in Abu Dhabi's the Al Nayan family. Mohammed bin Zayed, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, is well known. He's a very important person in the Middle East. He's Mohammed bin Salman's mentor, the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia, the man who the CIA believes orchestrated the killing of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. There's a lot of power, there's a lot of connections, and it turns out that if you're a celebrity from Britain or Russia or from North Africa or any other part of Europe, you can go to the UAE with this company and you can get a vaccine through these connections. For their part, though, they do say that they're only doing this for their older club members. They are at least trying to be 65 and older, that type of thing. It's fair to say this. The CEO of another leading lifestyle concierge said, I can't see us getting involved, as I'd say, it's morally questionable. McNeil, the CEO of Knightsbridge Circle, said to me, I have to weigh up the balance between making lots of money and being able to sleep at night. So I'm not going to get a vaccine for a 35-year-old who wants to go to the gym. And to be fair to them, and we can roll our eyes, but it's what you say is true. It's only people of a certain age. People that have the means are going to try to do this type of stuff. As I mentioned earlier, it's happening in the United States too, particularly in Florida, because the order was anybody over 65 can get the shot. So people were coming in from all over the place. They've since changed those rules and you have to be a citizen of the state. This vaccine tourism uh, is just kind of another part of this whole vaccine rollout. So we'll keep seeing what happens with all of it. Oscar Rickett, contributor to Vice World News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. I was looking forward to, you know, like maybe a prom and football games and just seeing my friends throughout the year, the people that obviously you're not like super close to, but you just like seeing in your classes. Um, It's weird that I might not see those people again. Joining us now is Ronnie Rabin, health writer at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Ronnie. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. 
one of the things that's been plaguing the country really when it comes to the pandemic and reopening is really been schools. How do we get our children back into schools? There was a lot of discussion. We had to close all the schools at the beginning of the pandemic. No one knew what really what was going on. We found out that younger people, children are spared some of the worst effects of coronavirus. And there was lots of calls to open schools. They, they opened and they closed. It was, it was really like a roller coaster going on with it. But now CDC officials are weighing in and saying that the available evidence we have say that we can open schools safely if the proper precautions are taken. There are some caveats, though. We need to deal with community spread. For the most part, schools should be the last places to close and the first places to open when we're doing shutdowns. So, Ronnie, tell us what we're learning. I think what's really going on is that we're as we come in and we're entering the second year of this in which um, all of our lives have been altered, but certainly for children uh, who aren't in regular school, these are huge developmental, very important, critically important periods in their lives. I mean, a, a year in the life of a child is, is huge, huge changes go on. And I think there's increasing concern about the deficits that aren't just educational, but are also kind of just holistic in a child's life. You know, it's their social life and their peers and all the services schools provide and their emotional and physical health and so many developmental milestones that people are concerned about them not meeting. Just the basic thing of getting up in the morning and having a routine and getting yourself organized and getting out of the house. I mean, just that basic kind of structure, as well as the services that are really vital for kids who are abused or don't get food at home. So I think there's increasing concern and there's a lot of push. A lot of parents really want the kids back in school and see what it's doing to their kids. And there are studies showing that it can be done safely, but in a very different way. The schools are different. They look different than they used to. And what the CDC, these CDC officials, and it's not C- official policy, but these are CDC top officials and researchers are saying is that we have some studies now that show that it can be done safely in the sense of schools aren't nursing homes. Schools are are not going to have spark these enormous outbreaks and conflagrations that spread through the community. One specific uh, study that they looked at, 17 elementary and secondary schools in Wisconsin where mask wearing was routine. That seems to be one of the main components to all this. But during 13 weeks in the fall of 2020, there was only 191 infections among staff and students. And only seven of those were from in-school transmission. So very, very low numbers. But this, these were also schools in rural Wisconsin that were smaller than a lot of the schools in big cities. That's the newest study. They looked at a number of studies that have come out. And there was one from North Carolina in which they found infections that within the school were very rare. There were infections, but there weren't any student-to-staff transmission. Remember, one of the big concerns is we know that kids overall do fairly well with this disease. But teachers and staff are concerned. And that's where you're getting a lot of the pushback is from the teachers and the unions who are worried about their health. They're older. They're more likely to suffer. And I have to say, on the other hand, I to take back what I just said. In Israel, they started saying the schools are the new nursing homes because there were actually big outbreaks that did start in a high school that had very large classrooms and the air conditioning was on and kids weren't wearing masks. What the CDC, I think, is trying to say here is we need to prioritize schools and not just businesses. We may be weigh, need to weigh things a little differently. We may need to cut back a little bit on what we're allowing in terms of businesses in order to let right. to keep the rates low and let the kids go to school and realize that as a social good, that's incredibly important. That um, was one of the big caveats there. They said, okay, let's reopen schools 
we're doing this as a community, obviously, we need to impose those limits on other settings. As you mentioned, you know, things like indoor dining, bars, poorly ventilated areas, you know, it's that give and take, but that school should be a priority in that at least. And Emily Oster, who's a Brown professor who has a project tracking infection rates in schools, said, you know, I can take my kid to an indoor water park, but a lot of schools in Massachusetts are closed. So that's kind of the balancing we're talking about. Again, the schools have to have certain things in place. People have to wear masks. Kids have to wear masks. There has to be social distancing. They may need some way of decrowding schools, of, of spacing kids out, need good air ventilation in the school, need a lot of screening and testing so that if you pick up a case, you, you can deal with it right away and need to continue to have the option of hybrid or online attendance for kids who have risky conditions. So it's not simple. What have they learned in terms of testing? Because uh, I noticed in your article, you wrote a little bit about some of the people from the American Federation of Teachers and kind of what they were noticing when they saw testing among teachers that were working remotely, working in class. What did they say about that? What they have found in one of the arguments is that you don't see higher rates among staff and teachers than in the community case rates. Of course, we don't have good data. We don't have any national tracking. We have some voluntary data that's being put in a dashboard, but we don't really have complete data by any means. But generally, the rates have been similar, certainly not higher. But there has been an increase in the case rate among teachers and staff. Cases have increased everywhere, but they've increased a little bit faster. But on the other hand, they've been increasing among teachers who are teaching remotely as well. So we right. don't know... We don't know exactly what's going on. Ronnie Rabin, health writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Foresight actually came out last year. Their prediction for 2020 was that as many as 25,000 stores could close. And we ended up not really getting anywhere close to that right, number. Yeah. Joining us now is Lauren Thomas, retail reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. You know, we've known throughout this pandemic how tough it's been for businesses. And the retail sector obviously has taken a huge hit, especially with closures. You know, it's tough to get out. People don't want to be out in public spaces and around a lot of people. So the retail sector really took a big hit. And there's a company that's predicting that as many as 10,000 stores could close in the U.S. this year, even though mm -hmm. we're seeing vaccines roll out. And, you know, the expectation is that people are going to want to get out and start shopping again. But these things are often delayed in that sense. So, Lauren, tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about it. So a firm called Coresight Research, their retail research group that many of us in the industry follow, and they put out a report this week saying as many as 10,000 stores could close in the U.S. this year. Now, if that happens, that would set a new record. To some, that might be surprising. You might think, okay, well, 2020 last year was obviously a tough year for the retail industry with the pandemic. Coresight actually came out last year. Their prediction for 2020 was that as many as 25,000 in stores could close. And we ended up not really getting anywhere close to that right, number. Yeah. They said when last year wrapped up, they ended up tracking just about 8,750-some closures. And the reason for that big divergence, they said, was many retailers ended up striking short-term deals with their landlords, be it a rent abatement, maybe they got some assistance to kind of stay open a little bit longer, make it through the year. But now we're coming into you know, 2021. This pandemic is obviously still something that we're all working through. So it's a bit of a, you know, it's spilling over into this year, kind of a hangover, and, and maybe some of that temporary assistance might run out. 
for that reason, they're anticipating that we could see an uptick in closures this year. And that's why we didn't maybe see as many last year. There were still obviously thousands of them, but not as many as they initially expected. And like you said, I'm sure that was a huge lifeline for a lot of these businesses Mm -hmm. making deals with their landlords and being able to not pay rent for a couple months here and there. I know that was a huge thing with the restaurant industry as well. It was Mm -hmm. just no businesses coming in. How can we possibly be paying rent? So I know that was a huge thing right there. But this is also kind of a trend that we've seen, let's say with malls, closures just constantly happening, even some of the big names, Macy's, Mm -hmm. JCPenney, things like that. One thing that's interesting, you know, and speaking to some of my real estate sources, they said that last year, you know, this pandemic really, it hit the U.S. We started to see the impact beginning in March. And so that's when these discussions started. And a lot of those deals would maybe cover these companies through the end of 2020. I think the mindset was, okay, we need help through this year. But I think a lot of retail businesses and restaurants, too, I'm sure, thought that maybe once we got into 2021, there would be some sort of relief or we wouldn't be in as bad of a a situation. But now we're still here and working through it. And and I'm hearing that a lot of that, again, that assistance is kind of expiring. So now people are coming back to the table trying to see if they can negotiate or strike some other sort of deal. But I think landlords, they've obviously got their own sort of liabilities to deal with. And so I think we're all still trying to get a sense of just how much more they can help, how much longer they can wait this out, ride this out, you know, offer rent relief or those sorts of things, you know, to help tenants stay in business. One of the other interesting things about all of this is with the rise of online shopping, obviously through the pandemic, Mm -hmm. everybody did it even more. That was also the trend too that was affecting these retailers. So apparel retailers really took a big hit. It was 36% of all store closures in 2020 were apparel retailers. And that seems like that might continue. There was another survey in another one of your stories where basically, you know, 40% of people said that they're going to do the same amount of shopping or less in these type of apparel stores. So that doesn't bode well for them at, at all. You can't forget the fact we have more retail square footage per capita than any other country. So still way too much retail real estate, really, when you look at everyone else across the globe. And a lot of that is apparel retail. You know, there are a lot of boutique apparel chains, you know, that probably you and I have have never heard of. And there's just a lot of that that's still out there that's still kind of being flushed out. So there was this other survey that you mentioned from a firm called First Insight, trying to get a sense of after consumers get the vaccine, will they feel more comfortable heading back to stores specifically to buy things like clothes and shoes? And it found about 40% of people won't really change their habits from what they're doing right now. So I don't think that there's going to be suddenly we hit a point where there's just a rush back to stores or rush back to the mall. I think it will be a gradual people gain that comfort level or their comfort level grows over time. But I don't think it will happen all at once comfortability factors is very key. You know, just anecdotally, I went to a mall not too long ago. I was going to pick up food from a restaurant, but I had to cross through the mall and there wasn't very many people, but there were people shopping, but just kind of halfway through, you trick yourself into it and you're like, oh man, maybe there's not good ventilation in here. I don't know what's, you know, so I walked even faster through the mall, you know, and those are the kind of things you just got to get comfortable being around people. And obviously the vaccinations are going to help, but it's a long road ahead. and, And these businesses are going to have to continue to throughout all of that. So we'll see how it develops. Lauren Thomas, retail reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
yourself and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Divers produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.